The Restless Midlifer podcast. Get health, weight and life back on your terms. To episode 90 of the podcast. Now, it's the second week in January and um, I've got a great interview with transformational coach uh, Fiona Maguire. Now, I'll get to that in a moment. The first thing I, I need to do is acknowledge a bit of a cock-up in my podcast uh, last week's audio. For those of you who might have got it delivered to your feed, apologies because what you got was uh, the raw audio of the interview with uh, Rachel Williams last week and not the finely edited bit with my bit of food for thought at the beginning where I talked about Betty Boo and doing the do. So for those of you who are, had it into your feed, then you might want to delete it and then refresh and re-download it so you get the proper polished audio edit. I say polished, polished as I tend to be. Um, but um, one of the things that I wanted to point out with that is to build in from what I said last week in that Food for Thought, which is Betty Boo doing the do. Because my point last week was that as we start this new year, when we're starting with this, the... Um, the new goals, the new health intentions, the new ambitions and motivations, we can often start to add a sense of pressure that we have to start perfect, be perfect, get it right, do it right first time and every time. Whether it's a new meditation practice, I've got to get it right. It's rubbish. I'm sitting down, my head's not right, etc. So I talked a bit about that last week and how it's important to, as, as the song uh, by Betty Boo says, do the do. No idea what doing the do means. I don't want to know what doing the do means. I just like it as a phrase to remind me that Dave... Do the do. Focus on just doing it. Get it done and do it. Park quality. Park perfection. Park the expectations of of anything like that. Because what we're trying to do is root and find a foundational kind of take the, the, the habit, the seed of that habit to take root. And quality can come later. Incremental improvements can come later. So that's what I talked about last week. And that kind of mantra of do the do or do a Betty Boo as I like to think of it is a reminder to park perfection when we add that pressure on. Having said that, what inevitably happens is that there will be a time when something needs to be fixed, when we need to address an issue that perhaps is going to undermine us carrying forward or means that the quality of what we do is such that we don't get the benefit from it. And that's when we need to not bring back the need to perfect, to get it perfect, to get it right, but to address, okay, so what is it and where do I, where do I need to, to address my attention and focus and what do I need to fix next? And kind of still park the perfectionistic approach and fix what we need to fix in time, just in time. And this is the, the point, because last week, uh, and I tied into the, the audio cock of us, if you like, um, last week was the second time that that's happened um, over a few weeks. And, you know, once, okay, we can all make mistakes, etc. Twice, then there's something in the system. There's a process, there's a habit, there's something not quite right. There's something where we need to focus on attention. Now this is where, if you think about your own health habits, a similar thing. If you know you, you don't get out for that walk today that you intend to do, if it's a one-off, it's a one-off. If it becomes something that's more regular and routine, then it's a question of what do I do about it? And the old me would have beat myself up for being so useless and like, how can I let something like that happen? I'd spend a lot of time focusing on self-recrimination and self-cavitage, as I call it. And perhaps we do that in other areas, and perhaps you recognize that in yourself. When you miss something, you come back to beating yourself up. When you miss it again, you beat yourself up. And that's understandable, permission to be human. However, what we need to do is recognize that that's not helpful. Um, a smidge of kind of question and challenge, come on, I can do better, can be useful, but the self-cabotage isn't. So it's about parking that 
And as I did with the mistake last week, I recognised this is twice, then there's something I need to look at. I brought the rational head to it, looked at the processes and the systems and looked for the, the opportunity to find the fix. And what was the fix? In this case, it was simple in the sense of I just need to clearly label the final, final, final edit more clearly and stand out clearly so it slaps me in the face when it's being uploaded or slaps uh, my support, uh, whoever's helping me in terms of schedule and etc. in the face to say that's the one that we need to uh, load up. So that was a simple fix. And this is the thing. If you think about the habits, the routines and rituals you're trying to embed, if we just focus on just getting them done, ticking the box, getting it sweated, that sprout sweated, and forget quality until we need to address an issue, fixing it just in time, we can start to get moving, get embedding the habit. And at the point we need to address something, we can then start to think, right, rather than beating myself up, what's wrong with me? Why haven't got the hang of it? What am I doing wrong? Why am I so useless? We start to think, right, what's, where is the system? What's the issue with the system, the process, the routines, the routines and rituals? Where is it that it's falling down? And what can I do to fix and tweak that and fix that one thing next? So it might be something like getting out for, and I'm, I'm talking about this because I've just got back into the running side because my son Thomas has uh, taught me into doing the Kiel Marathon in October, so I've got some training to do. But getting out for a run and, you know, feeling the cold and perhaps, you know, not wearing a set of gloves, for example, might be the thing that just, you don't have a set of gloves to hand, you haven't bought them or whatever, you haven't got them to hand. It's the thing that puts you off going out the door. Now, you might spend your time beating yourself up for being so soft and useless, but actually there's a simple fix there. It's to get a set of gloves, put them in your pocket, your coat pocket that you run with, whatever, and have them on hand for the next time. So it's about finding the simple fix. Meditation practice, rather than focusing on it has to be perfect, it might be a case of, yeah, I'm doing it, I'm doing the practice, but you know what? Where I'm doing it could be better. Maybe I'm going to find, I'm going to find a, a better spot in the house, the flat, the wherever, just to do this. I'm going to tidy that particular area so that it's a little bit more conducive. Not massively more, but incrementally just a little bit better. So we focus on fixing this thing next. So that's the idea that we're trying to approach it with. And I, there's a quote that I love from James Clear, who's the um, author of Atomic Habits, which is a great book. And um, it's something along the lines of, we don't rise to the level of our goals or aspirations. We fall to the, to the uh, level of our systems, our rich, and I'm expanding on the quote here, our ritual routines and subroutines and habits. So we can have all the aspirations and the goals we want, but if the systems and the habits and rituals aren't quite right or in place or don't follow or don't kick things into action, then that's where we need to look, to look at the system and the process. So it's looking at the systems and processes that undermine, prevent you actually getting out the door or eating right, whatever it is, but also then looking at the systems and routines that encourage you to do the right thing, that are actually part of that process. And if they're not quite right, getting into the, the weeds in relation to that and finding the one thing that needs to be fixed next to give it a better chance of working next time so you do the do like Betty Boo says so that's my view for that so apologies to those of you who got the podcast last week uh, cringe about it but uh, it's fixed touch wood and I will be monitoring that uh, in the future uh, and in onto the main part of the interview that was my food for thought really in terms of that Betty Boo do the do but also work on a fix this next basis rather than try to get everything perfect from the beginning we've got a great interview with Fiona Maguire now Fiona is an intuitive transformational coach and um, Fiona describes herself and is a high, excuse me, what is termed as a highly sensitive person 
and an empath. Now we get into what those terms are and the difference between them because this is an area that I've been interested in and I've studied slightly, not heavily, so I'm not an expert by a long shot in this. And it was useful to clarify the difference between the two because I've heard this term empath in, in, in my work and around, you know, generally. And, and to be honest, I had a bit of a, I guess, I'm thinking of, um, you know, minority report type perspective of what an empath is, somebody who can kind of sense all sorts of things. So I kind of probably had uh, this fanciful uh, perspective on what it is. So we get into the actual, what they, what these terms mean, and particularly how it's shaped Fiona's life in from um, childhood through to being a psychotherapist nurse, working with children who need a lot of support, to then moving into coaching and working with individuals who are carrying around a lot of trauma or emotional pain, and how she uses her, her those um, traits, if you like, to help them sort of free and become more comfortable with their emotions. So it's a great interview. I learned a lot. And um, I also found that uh, it was useful to challenge some of my own perceptions around this area as well. So hopefully you'll pick that up and you'll enjoy it yourself and get a lot from it. And um, and you'll find in the show notes links with to uh, Fiona if you want to actually get in touch and have a chat and learn more from her. Um, and if you have any feedback or thoughts, drop me a line, Dave at restlessmidlifer.com. But on with the interview. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Fiona. It's uh, great to have you along. Do you want to tell the listeners a bit about yourself and then we'll dive in? Okay. My name is Fiona Maguire. I'm an intuitive transformational coach and I work with people and I help them solve their problems very quickly. My, the main people I work with are highly sensitive people and empaths because I am both myself. So I have an understanding of them that not many people can bring. Yeah. To sessions, but I work with CEOs to floor sweepers to single mums and everything in between, children, everything. Cool, and uh, th- this is well, we we got to know each other the last few weeks, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was particularly to focus around your work, but also with HSPs. I think is a shorthand is a highly sensitive person and yeah, empath. So we'll dig into that if we can. But what I'm keen to do is also learn how you got here to be doing this. What's what's the background? Who are you, and what 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 brings you to do this kind of work? Well, I was always incredibly intuitive, and of course, as a child, I wouldn't have called it that. As a child, I was just always into what makes other people tick and why do people feel one way to me but behave in a different way I, I was very curious about that and I could always feel other people's emotions and I knew that they weren't my emotions I knew that they were other people's so I just figured out well everybody must be the same right because I was a child why would I think any different and it took me a long time to realize that a lot of people including even my parents at times, didn't know what they were feeling. Like I knew what they were feeling, but but they didn't. And that that intrigued me and made me really curious. So I became a photographer, a documentary photographer, and then I became a psychologist, an assistant psychologist with NHS and a community worker in social services because I just wanted to find out what makes people tick and I wanted to help people. And then I realized that I, I was really intuitive and, and I could feel not only what other people were feeling, but I had a good idea what was going on in their heads and what was going on for them. And I could help them see their own behavior in a different way to what the other psychologists or workers could. And by them gaining a cognitive understanding of what was happening, we were then able to work with the deeper emotions and feelings um, and energy, the unconscious mind. 
But, you know, as a psychologist, you don't say to somebody, I'm going to work with your energy. You say, I'm going to work with your unconscious mind. You're up for that. And then they're, they're open to it. And then you pull out the trauma that happened at whatever time. the Because all so-called negative behaviors are defense mechanisms. So whether it's overeating, which is something that you deal with, or whether it's, you know, being late, or whether it's just being a pain in the backside, you know, they're all defense mechanisms. You learn them at a certain age. And at that certain age, you know, three, four, five, younger, or, you know, 12 or 15, it works. So you kept doing it because it works. It's your default protective mechanism. But as soon as you realize that, the brain's like, oh, yeah, this doesn't serve me. But you have to pull out the emotions and the energy that got created at the time to stop the person going back to that default behavior. And that's what I do. I work with all aspects of somebody. But being intuitive enables me to get to the heart of their problem very quickly and change you. Great, really cool. So there's loads I want to dive into. I'll, co- I'll come back to what do you mean by intuitive shortly, if you don't mind. So if we do, I, I want to just pin that because I think that's a really important aspect just to clarify. What you're talking there about the, the working with their emotions and their energy. What, what's the difference then between emotions and energy or are they kind of wrapped up in the same you know, I, I can't find this again. In fact, I haven't looked for it for ages, but emotions literally mean energy in motion. All right, yeah. I've heard I've heard that somewhere on my travels. I know that's through Absolutely. the Absolutely. But you're so there's different types of energy. Of course, there's your physical energy and your mental energy. Um and people say your emotional energy. And there's also social energies, energies that other people can't detect you know so less people can detect them than the people that can't like the energy of a flower or the energy of an animal or you know and then other ones like the general atmosphere of a room that's the energy when you think of somebody and suddenly they call that's not a coincidence that's because you're often you're thinking of them so the energy of your thoughts go out to them they pick that up in the ether and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to give Fiona a ring or I'm going to give David a ring. And th- that's how it works. And, you know, when you, you've walked into a party and you're just like, oh, God, I'm just not going to enjoy this. And you don't. Or, you know, you're really looking forward to seeing a friend for a cup of coffee. You go and meet them. You haven't seen them in a while. And quite quickly you, f- you think, God, God, I feel really shit. What What's happening to me? Why am I here? And then it's only later on during the day or maybe you don't even realize at all that actually you took on your friend's emotions because before you met them in the coffee shop you was feeling great so you've literally taken on what they're feeling you've taken on their energy you know some people call it the, the demeanor or the way that you you present the feeling of somebody it, it it's all energy and actually everything's energy you know and that's been proven now by quantum physics quantum science that everything in the world is energy everything's made up of atoms and quirks and you know that oscillate in a different way and they give off a different vibration and frequency everything is there's just some people that are able to you know that they live in that world empaths live in that world of subtle energy they they feel everything but they feel it deep inside of themselves and they literally take it on 
So if it's someone else's energy, they literally take it on as if, oh, that, that sadness is mine. And then their body replicates that and they literally feel sad. So, so yeah. So, emotions, the, sorry, emotions are. So actually, as this is very interesting, as a highly sensitive person and an empath, um, and knowing and understanding a lot about emotions, my emotions were incredibly important to me. And I I believe that if I if I felt it, then it was real. It has to be real because I'm feeling it. You know, and I, I feel that other person feels like this, so that they're definitely feeling that, and that, that's real. Then as I got older, I got a bit more humble around that and, and realised that actually also my own perceptual filters were getting in the way, and sometimes my intellect was getting in the way. And sometimes was it actually important that they were feeling sad, acting happy, or vice versa? If it's working for them, then let, let them go ahead. But now... This is my understanding that I've come to. Our emotions are really our body's reaction to our thinking. So um, if we're having, you know, make it really simple, if we're having good thoughts about our partner, or good thoughts about our life, we're going to feel good about them. If we're having not so good thoughts, we're going to not feel so good about them. They haven't done anything. You know, the only difference is what's going on in our heads and what we're making up. And our body reacts to that. We literally get chemicals in our body due to our thoughts that we feel as emotions. It's a chemical reaction to our thinking emotions. And and science believes in this. Um, they just don't explain it in that exact way. But what they do say is that emotions are, are chemicals in the body that we're feeling. So now that I realize that my emotions are my body's reaction to my thinking, I don't take them so seriously anymore. However, I do take my feelings seriously. And my feelings are my body's response to what is going on in that moment. So if I'm, you know, talking to a friend and I and I feel, oh, they're they're angry or I feel angry. And it's not an emotion, like I feel it. I feel it in every single, single cell of my body. Um, then I'm like, is this present? Yeah, okay, this is present. Then I might share that with them or I might just be with that and, and see what's going on. Where, you know, emotions tend to be about past thinking. People get triggered. So it's not about what, what their spouse or their friend just said in that moment it's actually something else in their memory gets triggered and therefore the body starts feeling the intensity of that motion that far outweighs what the present current situation calls for. And you're lost in your emotions. You're lost in your thinking. You're not in the present moment feeling what truly is. So I guess to start from the point of view of the emotion side, because I think as somebody who's been conditioned <laughs> over the years, over the, you know, as, a, as a young boy, is to, to sort of just forget your emotions, your emotions, forget them, just get on with it, you know, that kind of thing, um, bottle them up, close them down, shut them down, etc. It, it's a journey, really, to start to appreciate that, that not just how powerful they are, because I think that becomes no shit, Sherlock, at a point when you have experiences, you think, my God, you know, these are really incredibly powerful things. 
but to realize that actually the crushing them down is not is not the answer and just to, to tune into them and to understand i think what you said there was really useful is that um the emotions the emotional side there are they're a combination, I guess, of those feelings, but with our interpretation um, laid over it. And that interpretation is the stories we tell ourselves, like past experiences, as you say, the trauma. And it's that 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 combination that we can get stuck with in terms of it. Your, your emotions are not a combination of your feelings. Your emotions are purely your body's reaction to your thinking. Right. And you feel your emotions in, in your body. But... You know, so for some people, like, how do you tell the difference? What's an emotion and what's a feeling? The easiest thing is, you know, is this real? Is this just about what's happening now? And often emotions are powerful. They're loud. They're, you know, there's an urgency to them. There's a, you know, I've got to stand up and protect myself, you know, or, you know, oh, poor me, or, you know, and, if you take a moment, you, you literally feel this is not in this present moment. There's something else going on in my head about the past or the future, and I'm making stuff up. Yeah. So that's all right. So the um, right, okay. So the 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 emotion is the, there's a physical response to it. That that's the experience. Yes. Is that what the you're physical response to the thoughts in your head. And right. thoughts are always past or right. future. Okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. So yes, the, th- the thinking behind it is, and I think um, Susan David talks about it, the, the te- technical of thought blending, she calls it, in terms of we kind of pull all sorts in. We have an emotion and there's all sorts of thinking going on potentially. And then we'll bring in other evidence and past experience to sort of perhaps even intensify the emotion or make it even more um, powerful if we're not aware of it. Yeah, so I actually wrote a book called The Key to Awareness. And in that, it talks about are you um, a feeling person or a thinking person? And, you know, somebody actually said to me, what comes first? Is it the thought or the emotion? And, you know, I, I I wrote different things in that book than what I know and what I believe now. So... It's always your thinking first, and then your body's reaction to it creates an emotion. Now, so when you feel something, you feel it literally in every single cell of your body, and it's and it's there, and you you know it. And there's there's just this general feeling tone to it. Emotion, you know, you, you like, I, I just, I'll tell you a silly but true story. I was washing dishes one day and I suddenly noticed that I had a tear coming down my face. So my thought was, well, why am I sad? And then, you know, I came up with loads of reasons why I'm sad because the mind is a problem solver. And then I thought, hold on, hold on. All I'm doing is washing dishes. None of this was present before. I'm creating this in my thinking. And I thought, but hold, hold on, the tear came down my cheek. That's how I noticed something was going on. So what was the thought that was there a thought that kicked this all off? So I just stayed quiet washing the dishes. I let the emotions run through. 
And then I realized the thought that I had, and I'm not going to share that with everyone publicly, but I realized that thought and I was like, aha, okay. So that's what my body's reacting to that thought. And to me, that changed a lot because I was like, yeah, emotion really is thought-based. Emotion is created through our thinking. So I let the emotion pass through because emotion is energy in motion. So I let go of the thinking. I let the tears pass through and I just stayed there. And then I went into my heart and I said, is there anything else here? Is, is there anything I really need to feel and acknowledge right now? And the emotion just went and there was nothing there. It was an old story that I'd made up about myself and my life that had been triggered by something that happened later, uh, earlier on during the day. And when I was quiet enough, the mind started ticking it over again like the mind does. Now, you know, if I was the type of person, if my partner was there at the time or my dog was there, I might have shouted at one of them. You know, but I didn't because I'm like, hold on, what's all this that you've been learning about emotions? Let's see if it's now true. And that was one of the first times I was like, yeah, this is really true in my own experience. And that was four or five years ago. And now I just know it's true. And I bring it to my clients and I show it to my clients. And after just one conversation with me, this man was having a really difficult relationship with his wife. He had one session with me. And straight after the session, we only touched on his wife a little bit. We touched on other things. Straight after the session, he wrote me, an email, like within 20 minutes, he wrote me an email and he said, my relationship to my wife is so much better because I just went into her and I just showed her my true feelings. And he said, I didn't do anything. I was just in my true feelings for her. And she responded with her true feelings for me. He said, nothing was said. It was literally just an exchange. And I can see straight away already, my relationship's different. Because he got it. He got that he's, you know, he was depressed at the time. And he got that all this thinking was causing all these emotions in his body. And it was just a spiraling circle that was going around, you know, basically making his business life hard, difficult, and making his relationship with his wife heading towards divorce. Mm. And he so, just got it. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And I think the thing with, so obviously, if in terms of understanding what emotions are, etc., it's it's more about, for me, about understanding that they can be powerful and actually we need to acknowledge that that they're there. They're, they're signaling something. Their data, their signals, I guess, is one way of looking at it. And the denial of the emotion is where we miss an opportunity, but also it's counterproductive. Because you talked about as a, as a child, you saw that kids would you sense that we're feeling something, but behaving in a different way. Yeah. So remember I said that feelings and emotions are different. So emotion should be noted, but with a very a light touch. Mm. You know, is this present? Is this my thinking? Mm. You know, and if it's your thinking, just quiet your mind down and the emotion will disappear. You know, if it's a feeling, if it's true that you feel it in all your body and it's true in that moment, it's sadness because someone's died. You know, it's um, 
it's concern because you're not well or, you know, you've got bills to pay that you haven't got the money. You know, that, that's a feeling in that moment. Mm. And if you stay with the physical sensation in your body of that feeling, then wisdom will come and you'll know what to do. If you get wrapped up in your thinking, then you're just creating emotion and you're creating a spiral where you feel more and more agitated, the emotion grows in intensity, you know, you're feeding the emotion. But if you just stay inside your body and you don't feed it, it will go. And if there's a real feeling there, then you'll feel it. And if you stay with that feeling, you'll know what to do. Can you see the difference between feelings? Yeah, okay. and so how do you do that then? How do you stay in your body or stay with the feeling? And what, what are some of the, the ways that somebody can do that? Because I think instinctively, as somebody who's conditioned to sort of treat them as uncomfortable or something that you just don't value, it's you shy away, you push it down, you avoid, you get on, you distract, you do something else, you drink something, whatever it is, you do something yeah. other than being present to it. So what, what would you suggest? I mean, obviously, I'm guessing if it's particularly extreme or whatever you've got to exercise some guardianship over yourself and just take care of yourself in the best way you can but what is what is the best way to sort of just be present to it so that you can allow that yourself to sort of wade through the the emotional side the interpretation to get to some sort of wisdom to ground which means you know i i give this free on my website um you know, you you literally you you put your attention inside your body. You center inside of your body. You stay with your attention inside your body, either in your heart or your pelvis or your feet, whatever's easiest for you. You try and feel all of your body at once, and then you either imagine or if you actually believe, you send some of your your energy down into the ground, uh, down into right into the core of the ground. And you, you'll know when it's there because you'll feel anchored. You'll, you'll feel kind of stabilized with the with the energy of the ground. But if that's difficult, or you don't believe in it, just putting your attention inside of your body and feeling your feet or your pelvis or your heart and then expanding to feel the whole of your body at once will bring you present. And by doing that, you know, taking a breath and doing that, you're not engaging, you're not feeding the emotion or you're not feeding the situation that's, you believe is causing that emotion. And then that enables your innate wisdom, your higher intelligence, you know, your your innate mental health, whatever you want to call it, to come in and, and give you the reality of what's happening, like a, a, the proper perspective of what's happening. Mm. You know, yeah, and so, sorry, go on. And you know, if if that feeling, like I was talking to someone about grief this morning. You know, if that feeling is grief and you're finding yourself in emotional spirals with that or you're finding yourself getting depressed with that or you're just always feeling sad with that and there's there's no light or there's no joy remembering that person, then maybe you need help. And, you know, maybe that's the wisdom that comes through. Well, actually, I need a grief counsellor or I need to tell someone about what I'm feeling right now. I need, I need to share this or I need to be listened to. You know, the, the thing is with wisdom, and wisdom is is intuition, really, is it's so soft. It's such a soft voice. And it's kind you know, it, it's a thought that just comes out of nowhere, or a feeling that comes out of nowhere. But it, it's soft and it's gentle. And many people don't 
recognize it because they're so used to listening to the revved up loud noise in their head that you have to take time to get into your body to to feel to sense to hear that that soft guidance we all have an inner guidance system which is our wisdom that's going to bring us where we need to go to yeah and it's interesting you say that about um you know, if you don't believe that it's, you know, that it's whether it's an external voice or that we're connected, etc. I think that it's about how do you strip it down to what are what are the experiences and what can we what can any of us gain if we whether we accept or believe that, you know, that we have an inner wisdom, etc. Because I think one of the challenges um, that many of us have is being brought up. And I'm one of them, to be fair, you know, as I've brought up sort of very down to earth, practical as a police officer for a lot of years um see bad things happen to good people you know that kind of stuff and struggle really to believe that there is anything more than than the physical and emotional side of us do you know what I mean so if we've got somebody who's struggling with something traumatic from the past um and doesn't necessarily isn't able to conceptualize it as there's a higher power or there's something else what how can we practically help that person practically is probably the wrong word but how can we actually help that person still see that there's some value in the grounding and the touching base with the quieter voice within us whatever what however we just you know define that is there any thoughts on that so the question is how do we yeah i, I guess what one of the one of the challenges i have um with uh well not me but not just me but i think a lot of us have is is kind of stepping away from the practical physical hard world that we live in to um to touch that softer side the emotional side to connect with that and to see it as valuable um and see it as actually playing a really important part in our lives and i can see that what happen- what we have is we have a, a a lot of people who can conceptualize that as it's it's part of a bigger purpose a belief system and energy that's out there that we're all connected i can kind of get that but i think there are many of us who kind of struggle with that as a concept and kind of even see it a bit woo-woo, soft, et cetera. But still, we still have these things called these powerful emotions and the things that are going on. And there is still different conflicting, I don't know, narratives. That there's the loud critical voice. I love the way you said the revved up voice that's always there yeah. versus the, the quieter, softer voice. Um, how, how I'm just thinking about how do we, how come somebody who's perhaps cynical of the other stuff still connect with that? Because I think that's real, there's real power and value in everything you said in terms of grounding, silencing and getting in touch with, but it can feel like it's wrapped up in other things, which maybe I'm not ready to buy into yet. That makes sense. But everybody's had the experience of looking into a child's eyes or looking into a pet's eyes or seeing a sunset or seeing, you know, a flower in, in bloom, you know, or, or seeing it, you know, something funny suddenly you know you're and and you know I worked in a psychiatric unit we we had dark humor and I know policemen and police women do as well why because it's what gets us through the day right you know because you're just you're bombarded with things all the time there's so much stimuli getting thrown at you all the time and you are expected to do 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 but when I worked in the hospital you know I I would make eye contact with I worked with children I worked with adolescents with young people as they're called now and um you know and a lot of the the young people that I worked with was on suicide watch they were literally trying to kill themselves 
You know, I could have stayed in my head and I could have stayed with all my psychological theories and trying to get them to talk and trying to get them to do this and trying to get them to do that and la, la, la. But this one, you know, young lady came in, you know, she she looked like a woman. She really did. And um, I think she was 15 or 16. She looked like a woman. And um, she said to me, you're treating me like a child. And I was like, oh, is that how it feels for you? She's like, yeah, I'm shut in this room. I can't do anything, blah, blah. And then um, I said, well, we can talk about that if you want. So she starts shouting and swearing at me. And I just stayed really quiet. And I, I chose to sat in the doorway because we was understaffed. There's a surprise. You know, there's meant to be two people with her at all times. You know, if there's one person, that one person is meant to be able to be seen by another member of staff at all times. You know how the job role is. So I sat in the door hoping another member of staff could see me the whole time and, you know, that I wouldn't ever be in a situation just with her by herself. And um, so she was shouting and swearing at me. She'd already kicked, punched and spat another nurse. So I made it very clear that, you know, I can talk to her, we, we can do anything, but if she physically hurts me, I'm not putting up with that. And I looked at her in such a way that she knew that, I would just put her on the floor, you know, because to me that was, <laughs> just wasn't up for that. I didn't care what protocol said. I wasn't getting punched in the face by, you know, by a kid and just, oh, thank you very much. You know, that's not me. And so, you know, I let her swear at me, do what she wanted to do. And then she just got tired and she looked at me and she said, you're different. And I said, oh, yeah, how's that? And I looked at her straight in the eye. And she said, because it doesn't matter what I say or what I do, you're just not getting rattled at all. She said, don't you fucking care? And I said, what do you think? And she just looked at me and she softened. And then I said, well, what do you really want? She said, I want to go out there. I said, what will you do if you're out there? She said, I'll fucking play with the kids, won't I? And I said, right, if you'll fucking play with the kids, we'll go out and you can do that. I said, but if you don't, if you do anything silly, I said, one, you're putting your life on the line, two, you're also putting my job on the line. And she said, is that all you care about? And again, I looked at her straight in the eye and said, do you think that's all I care about? I'm willing to take a risk because I believe in you and I want you to experience what it's like to be a child and go out there and play. She just settled right down and in that moment, we both knew that that's all she wanted to do. And I knew that it was safe to bring her out there to do it. Mm. So I've told you that story because when we look into someone's eyes, when we really look into someone's eyes, we know the truth because it's reflected in our own being. And there's quietness there, isn't there? You can't look in someone's eyes and have loads of thinking, loads of revved up thinking or, you know, be up here and be cut off from your heart or the rest of your body. You're there, you're with them, you, you feel the truth of what's going on. And, you know, that's what I get people to do for themselves. Look inside, feel your own truth, feel your own wisdom. Yeah, and, and, and I think this is this is really important. You said a lot there as well, especially before the story, which is very powerful, but about just we've probably all had moments, where, no doubt if we've been on this planet long enough, we'll have had moments where there's been some sort of sense of awe or connection yeah. or what have you and and I totally get this so I'm, I'm admittedly I'm a work in progress and in terms of my own spiritual inquiry inquiry should we say 
I'm still not mind made up. I'm still gone from probably very cynical questioning, just whatever, to more open to it. And I guess that's why I frame the question like that because I think what I'm keen to do is not is to is to open up anybody who's struggling with their emotions, connecting with them, connecting with other people in life. Because I think there's a lot we don't understand and appreciate about how we connect as human beings. And the way we connect is through that sense of awe or moment of spotting something, you know, whether it's a snow on a, I'm saying snow because we've just had a lot of it, but uh, snow that's untouched, you know, and you just think, oh, there's something it touches. But we rarely slow down or stop to give ourselves those moments. And in connection with each other, we rarely do that. And when you were saying about eye contact, I think that's very, very true. That as a police officer, one of the best things I've done when I've worked with people, you know, in, in certain situations was to just be present to them and to, to look in their eyes. Now, sometimes that's not a great idea, depending on what the situation is, but sometimes it is because it's a human connection. I can't explain that, but there is something there. And I think for me, those, those of us who are struggling to connect with our emotions, um, who've been conditioned to feel that they're, they're actually weakness, they're the wrong, you know, they're just irrelevant. We, nevertheless still are governed by them in other ways and can be crushed by them if we're not careful so it's how do we connect with them so that grounding that taking a moment that quietness i think is a really powerful um first step if you like and probably not just a step but a practice through life you know i think that's really really powerful absolutely like you said if we're quiet enough we can feel it Mm. if we're quiet enough we, we we're connected to ourselves to other beings so we have to be quiet enough because 99% of the time, most human beings are stuck in their head with all them loud, revved up thinking. So a lot of people say to me, how do I know the difference between my thinking and intuition, wisdom? Is it loud? Is it demanding? Is there an urgency to it? Is it fast? Yeah. Okay, that's your thinking, hmm. you know. Does it come in and does it feel good? Does it come in and bring you peace and quietness? Even if it's just for a millisecond, that's intuition, that's guidance. Mm, I love that. I think that's a really useful thing to pit, to sort of put a pin in and, and highlight because the difference in the tone and the sense of urgency and what have you is, is really, really important because we're often driven by that loud voice, aren't we? the loud demanded voice and making space in our day as a practice, I think could be really powerful because those this, the other things tend to surface more quietly, so bubble through just gently and surface through. I, I noticed this in a recent yeah. practice I've just started, which is get up on a morning and just have a cuppa and sit for, with myself for 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, yeah. No agenda. And it's amazing what surfaces and then what counters it with the loud revved up voice that I then go, hang on a minute, just put that to one side. But I think that takes practice, but I yeah. think there is something really powerful in that. For I think as soon as you notice it, Dave, that's it that's a breakthrough right it's just once you first notice it like you you can't undo what you know you just can't and that's why a lot of us you know I burn out on my first job as an assistant psychologist I was 23 years old I saw and experienced way too much for someone of my age and I grew up in a tough neighborhood I'd already seen quite a lot I'd already been in a fair few fights myself, you know, in a fair few situations that, you know, other people in different circumstances wouldn't have experienced. So I thought I'd seen a lot of life, but working in a psychiatric unit for children, poor, 
you know, I, I burn out. But what I also saw was, was the beauty of humanity, mm. you know, and how deep and profound those connections were. You know, the first time that a child disclosed sexual abuse to me from their parents, I was devastated. Of course, it could be devastated in front of that kid. I had to do my job. But I walked into the office and I just burst out crying because I just felt so much and I, I just needed to, to release it. But then, you know, I was really worried about, well, what would I do the next day when I saw her father? Because to be honest with you, part of me thought I'd punch him. I really did because, you know, that was my solution. That's what I'd been taught as a kid, you know. Someone hurts you, you hurt them back just as hard, or you you hurt them first, you know. So I was really worried. And when when he walked in, I, I wasn't in the room at the time. He came early. Uh, um, no, I was just opening the door. There was another member of staff in there, a nurse. And the way his child looked at him, it just blew me apart because I thought there's pure love between these two. Even though he's sexually abusing her, there's still this pure love. And that, you know, you can probably see this water in my eyes now because it was so powerful. I thought, wow, you know, fundamentally that's who we are. Whatever else happens in life, that's still there. That, that love, that pureness, that honesty is there. Okay, it gets abused. But to see it in both their eyes, that that was one of the most profound spiritual experiences I've had in my life. Wow. So it kind of seems like a bit of a, a segue, but it actually ties in is, is what is the difference then? Or how would you define highly sensitive person to, a, uh, to an empath? Because that experience that you, you felt or saw something, I, I would imagine most of us would be going, you know, I would probably be sticking with the former, the the, the version of you that thought you're going to punch his lights out. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. But to, to sort of see something like that, uh, well, let, let's get to the, the HSP versus empath. What I'm saying versus like the, the total opposite. But what, what are the differences? Because there clearly are differences between the two. And I think it's important. The reason I say this is because I think many of us out there, because of the way we're conditioned around and brought up around emotions, we don't even appreciate that we'll have different, you know, we're all different. We're all different in how we, how sensitive we are to, you know, our own emotions, to to life, to the world, and 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. So a highly sensitive person is is obviously someone that's highly sensitive. So they have a deep inner life. They have a great imagination. They feel things very deeply. You know, looking at a pet or sunrise, it, it can bring them to tears. Tears of joy because it's just so beautiful. You know, so we feel things just very, very deeply. We often don't like to be in overcrowded places or with people, more than three people at a time, because we find it too overwhelming. There's just too much going on, you know. And a lot of um, highly sensitive people, we walk into a room and we notice everything. You know, how many men are in the room? How many women are in the room? How many books are on that shelf? What colors the wallpaper? What what's the light shade look like? We just know is everything, and um, that can be overwhelming in itself. And you know, we just pick up on on so many details, and we pick up on the general atmosphere in the room. Like 
you know, what are the people generally feeling like who's getting on with who, who's safe, who's not safe, who's my type of person, who's not my type of person. And so all those things I've just mentioned, an empath will notice those as well. Um, now, th- there's some there's some things in, in science that disagree with each other. So the thing I was looking up before we spoke, because I still can't find the answer in science, but I know that a highly sensitive person's brain, it is wired differently than a non-highly sensitive person's brain. So a highly sensitive person's brain is wired to notice everything and to take in a lot more information at once. And thank God, our brain is also wired to process all that information a lot quicker than the average person. So the average person, they used to say the average person had, you know, they they noticed unconsciously, they noticed like 4,000 pieces of stimuli a second or something. A highly sensitive person will notice way more than that, like double, treble, you know, quadruple. Um, but a, a non-highly sensitive person, they will only be consciously aware of um, six or seven things will actually get through to the, the actual conscious processing part of their mind. Out of those things, only two of them, one or two of them will actually be thought of and realise it's been consciously thought of by that person. A highly sensitive person, I know that I'm thinking a lot more things, you know, like, and I, you know, you can only think of one thing at a time, thank God, but there's, there's, there's seven or eight pieces that have got into my conscious mind. So I might be aware of, you know, oh, there's a group of five women over there and they're all not feeling good or they're all feeling bitchy. There's a group of men over there that are all talking about Bitcoin and I'm not interested oh, there's someone over there that's talking about something I'm interested in. And I'll just pick up on that information and I'll pick up on that level of detail of that information as well. I can't hear it. I just know it. And, and you know, that used to be overwhelming and it can still be, but I have ways of where it's not. And that's useful to me. But more importantly, well, I'm going to ask you a question before I go off on a tangent. Where I don't know if an empath's brain works the same as a highly sensitive's brain, and I can't find that out in the mm. science that I've been looking at. But we so we share a lot of the traits that I mentioned. You know, um, we we notice things deeply. We take on things deeply. Um, overcrowding, everything else, preferring to be with three people at once. And some empaths are, they're extroverted people. They they do actually like noisy environments. That's impossible for a highly sensitive person, you know, because we're just processing too much. There's just too much going on. My ear literally hurts if I'm in a noisy environment. I have to get out of it or wear headphones or earplugs or something. Um, but I'm also an empath. So the, the main difference between a highly sensitive person and an empath, and everyone agrees on this, is that an empath will literally feel the emotions and the energy as if it's their own. So if 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 I was, you know, if I was talking to you and I didn't know what I know now, it's not shared with you yet, and you were feeling sad, I would take on that sadness. And a lot of empaths and highly sensitive people 
they they get confused. They don't know if that energy is theirs or not. They don't know if that emotion is theirs or not. So they then believe it's theirs and their brain starts wondering, why am I feeling sad? Why am I feeling happy? Why am I feeling whatever? Um, and that can make, you know, literally feeling it inside of you makes that process even stronger because you're, you're, you're feeling it as if it is your own. Mm. So, so a couple of things, if we can take a pause on it, just so I can kind of catch my thinking on here. Um, that, that, there's, there's a clear distinction between the two, although they do share a lot of traits. I get, I get that. So I'm going to chuck a couple, I don't know the metaphors, et cetera, but these are very rough thoughts. Um, one is, it's it sounds a bit like the HSP side is, um, I'm thinking of a James Bond film possibly where, you know, they the administer a drug and suddenly you're sensitive to a, a, a feather being dragged across the skin. It feels like you're getting a skin scraped off. I don't know if it's a James Bond film, but it's one of these kind of spy films where they, they inject them to torture them and get information out of them. But the point of it is, you have your normal sensations and then suddenly they inject this drug and just a brush of a feather feels like you've suddenly had your skin ripped off you it feels like it, it, tell me if this is wrong but it, like that the hsp is is kind of like the sensitivity meter is just dialed up more so that yeah absolutely it, so our level, yeah so our level of arousal which means the le- your level of arousal is the point at which you become stressed right. the point at which something becomes too much for a highly sensitive person our level of arousal is much lower than a non-highly sensitive person Mm. because we're taking in so much stimuli all of the time and we're processing and noticing so much more all of the time you know Mm. so we just got much more to deal with so therefore you know something little can come in and and push us over over the edge if you've not learned how to deal with that which is what i specialize in and what what i teach people right okay cool so if i can Ask my next question, and then we'll kind of tease through. Yeah, sure. Is there, there when you said that you are both HSP and empath? Is there a is there an overlap in that you tend to find more HSPs or empath empaths as well, or is it kind of just there is no real correlation? Uh, the reason I'm asking is because something like depression and anxiety, there's a high correlation between the two. You know, eighty percent. Sure, absolutely. So I'm just wondering, really. Yeah. So they say that fifteen to twenty percent of the population are highly sensitive people. They say being the scientists, only one percent of the about one or two percent of the population are, are true empaths. People that literally take on other people's feelings and then feel them as if they're their own. Now, there's something that science disagrees with, so I'll just say my own take on it. I don't believe that all empaths are highly sensitive people. Right. Oh, so so what what is there an implication there that the empath is a subset of the hsp but no, you don't agree with that no or? like so it's so the, there's a lot of scientists that say you know empaths are highly sensitive people okay yeah all empaths are also highly sensitive people yeah but i don't i don't believe that through my own experience of you know talking with and being with, you know, some empaths. Because some empaths, and, you know, I think a lot about this, they don't they don't seem sensitive at all, but maybe that's because they just can't deal with their sensitivity, so they've literally cut it off. Because that's a normal response to trauma, mm-hmm. you know. 
if we're overwhelmed by our feelings all of the time and our emotions all of the time because of trauma that's happened and we keep repeating that trauma in our head and therefore our ability to cope with something else is so little because we're just reliving the trauma all of the time, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, then you cut it off. You literally cough your ability to feel because you don't want to feel the bad stuff in the world, but then you can't feel the good stuff either. And you can't have a relationship with your own emotions because you literally have cut it off as a defense mechanism. Now, that's an interesting comment uh, to to sort of explore. But I guess, is it before, well, I suppose it might be part of this, is that... um, is it possible to, in terms of empath, that they're, it's it's highly sensitive in one particular dimension, i.e. emotion? Do, do you know what I mean? Kind of be focused in on a dimension. Uh, yeah, that, there, there, is, there, there are people that are looking at that now, like they believe that there's subcategories of um, being an empath, like there's emotional empaths, there's intuitive empaths, there's physical empaths. Right. Oh, right. And, and I actually have met somebody who's, really good at reading somebody's like oh you've got a pain in your left shoulder but she's got no idea what that person's feeling emotionally right okay right you know right. and um i just you know i just kind of had all the abilities at once and i was just aware of them as as a child so the, the um I suppose another question. See, I'm bombarding you now with loads of questions here because I think it's it's generating such a lot of questions for us. But the idea of shutting off as a coping strategy to it is an interesting one because again, I reckon I can recognise that as a, a general coping strategy that we will avoid, suppress, shut down something that's unpleasant. Yeah. If you're particularly strong in the empath side and don't understand it, you have a counter messaging around what emotions are, and yet these are this real strong overpower and overwhelming feeling that that often you know you'll notice more because of the negative i guess or be inclined to shut down more of the negative that that you might you develop your count your coping strategy or maladaptive coping to, is to shut it down that that resonates actually with me in terms of i wonder how many people do find themselves doing that in response to feeling this Higher, yeah, well higher. you don't have to be an empath to shut down no, your no, emotions because no, no, no. you can't handle emotions yeah, yeah. Like a lot of a lot, I remember working with this this man, and he was about my age, and um, I he he came to me because he he was experiencing problems in his work life, and and he didn't have a relationship at the time, and I said to him, "Sounds like to me that you're a highly sensitive person." Oh no, I'm not, and you know, no disrespect, but he was a northerner, and I I. And I, I just said to him, okay. And he had such a boom, such a strong reaction to me saying that, that I thought, okay, you know, fair enough. And then I asked him about his childhood and he told me, and he told me like, he told me like he was reading a weather report. And when he'd finished, I just sat there in silence and he said to me, is the computer frozen? And I said, no, I'm just taking in everything you just said. You, you went through a lot as a kid. Oh, no, I didn't. And I said to him, hold on, do you mind me just reading back to you some of the things you said? Oh, I thought we'd frozen then. And I read him like five things and he looked at me and he was like, bloody hell, I did go through a lot as a kid. 
Yeah. And I said, yeah, so how was that for you? And he's like, I don't think about it. So then he shut, he shut off again and he wanted to push it away. So I left it and we talked about something else. And gradually he just said, yeah, you're right. I was a sensitive kid. I got bullied, so I toughened up and I became the bully. And I said, well, okay, but that's not working for you now, is it? You're having problems in your work. You know, you've just split up with your missus. It's obviously not helping you, is it? And and then you eventually said, and it's even harder, I do actually feel everything, but I don't know how to deal with it. So I just keep the default program on of, of kind of being the bully. Mm, interesting. And yeah. of course, he wasn't a bully as an adult, but he was shut down and he was, you know, he was shut down and so he'd sleep and then all of his emotions would come up. And then he'd have to shut them all down again. And, and this was just basically wrecking havoc with his immune system, you know, his adrenal glands. He, he was, you know, his foot was always going. I could always hear his foot tapping on the floor. And, you know, but when it, when he just finally got it and he allowed himself to feel it and, and I helped him release everything else. And then, you know, I said to him, look, you can feel things and you can be aware of things, but you don't have to take on the emotions and you don't have to take on the energy. And I taught him how to do that. And like now the guy's written books and he's actually teaching emotional intelligence and he's doing really well and he's got married again and I'm friends with his wife and, and it's great. Lovely, and and that is a powerful. I resonate personally with that. Um, in the the shutting down of emotions, um, being I mean, I was I was always branded as a kid as being a sensitive kid, and I've always felt a little bit out of step with the world. Anyway, do, do you know what I mean? And and yeah. um, the coping strategy, particularly, you talk about northerner. I take no offense because I remember being, you know, the 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 kid we were new kid in a pit village, get into a fight, running back, running in the house, and my dad basically grabbing my shoulders, turning me around, marching me, pushing me back out the door and saying, you fight. And that's what he did. And I'm not a fighter. You know, I was completely the opposite of that. Um, and that conditioning led to you realising, and this is realising in, in that context, that, you know, that's not the way to live. That's not the right way to live. You just shut up, get on with it. You play the game, you play the part, you act tough, blah, blah, blah. Um, anybody who knows me knows that I don't act tough. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? For me, it yeah. was acting tough. <laughs> yeah. But play this part, but stifle and shut down and cut off the emotions so to the point where I, I, the phrase always pops to mind is I think through my emotions, I don't feel through fear or experience my emotions. Do you know what I mean? That's just my way of yeah. kind of conceptualizing it. But the allowing yourself to feel emotions, and I'm still a work in progress with this, is scary the first time or the, the early times when you start to open up to the possibility of that. I think it's a whole journey to go on, which is why I think it's really interesting. This is why I, I wanted to have you on the, to talk about this topic, because I would imagine that there will be a number of listeners who can resonate with it, some or all of what you said. And I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. I, I understand that this is in the way. How do I start? Where do I start? What do I do? Now, you've given some okay. great tools. So you that said that oh. you you think through your emotions, okay? In all due respect, when you think through your emotions, you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not getting in touch with anything. You're exactly. staying exactly. in your brain yeah. 
Yeah. And actually, you're actually causing yourself more emotion yeah. because that's where the emotions are coming from anyway. They're coming from your yeah. thinking. That's where we started. Yeah. Okay. When when you learn how to ground, you actually discover that your body is actually a safe place. It's a safe place to be in your body. Where when you're thinking, you're literally cut off. You know, there's nothing from the neck down. That's gone. That's frozen. Like, and I'm not joking here. It, it's serious. You're, you're not able to feel. You're not able to get in touch with yourself and to know what's going on. And when we think for our emotions, that's just another way of dissociating from actually feeling what is really there. Mm. So when when you learn how to ground by yourself or, or you do it with a practitioner like me in a safe place and you learn how to really be connected with your body, everybody I've worked with, Everybody, even highly traumatized people from war zones, has said, Wow, I feel safe. I feel warm. I feel quiet. And they're like, Because they didn't expect that. Mm. To them, their body's a scary place where their body is what holds the emotion, which holds the feeling, which is scary. But that's just because they've had a mental relationship to it, they've not had a real relationship to it. When they really get into their body, they're like, wow, there's, there's space here. I feel expansive. I don't feel contracted. I feel expansive. Okay, now you're really feeling. So now let's really feel. And when you're grounded and there's an expansive space, the feeling is not overwhelming. A feeling is not overwhelming. An emotion is. Why? Because it's constantly being fed by your thinking. And you're here. You're not in. You know, look how much space our head takes up so the rest of our body right it makes sense that when we're in our body we're expanded why because we're filling more space you know i'm getting excited because the amount of difference this makes to people i've had people about to you know lock themselves into a psychiatric unit not that that actually exists anymore but it used to you know and admit themselves to you know a hospital for mental problems and stuff like that that's an exist you can still do that you know um and then they come to see me and they're like well actually i get it i i get that i can have a safe relationship with myself mm. Mm. i love that and i think that's, thanks for emphasizing that because that that that's where i think a lot of people may well be um with it that they're thinking through not experiencing not feeling and you know, that was my quote. That was the way I, I did it, you know, think it through. Well, uh, combined with drinking through it, <laughs> you know, that kind of yeah. thing, numbing it, working through it, whatever the the, the numbing strategy I could use to help. And I guess that's my point about it. That when I started, because this is obviously for me, it's a journey of well, 10, 15 years now, I guess. And I'm by no means fixed, <laughs> sort of, it's a work in progress, which is the joy of it. But Back then, the first inkling or realisation that actually things could be different or, well, firstly needed to be different, but they could be different, that these emotions, I need to connect with them more. That was a scary time at that time. And I would probably say there wasn't a, there wasn't the support that we have nowadays, like yourself, that kind of thing. That It wasn't on the radar back then. It was kind of fumble your way through, read a few books, start to get physical exercise, which is a good way to connect physically. Yeah, absolutely. Part of that, part of that mix, but still a long, bumbling journey. But the fear I remember at the time was, you know, that was quite strong. That like, 
I really need to connect with them, but I don't want to. I, if I feel like good stuff, the good, bad stuff's going to come with it, you know, that kind of thing. So I love the way you explain that because I think that's, it's not a reassuring, but it provides a sort of a, for anybody who's listening, a, a sort of even a way that they can conceptualize that. That's how I could do it. That's how I could feel or explore it more safely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's free on my website. Oh, cool. You know, well, the ground and exercises. And I could find the actual Pacific link. It's it's actually um, there, there's four audios, and they're, they're targeted to doctors and people that work in the health profession. But you know that that's that's number one and number four. But two is is you know what is grounding and what is it what's it's not like an introduction to it. That's track two and track three is the actual grounding exercise, and it's auditory. It's it's me guiding you through it in a really hopefully nice gentle voice people tell me so which is relaxing in itself mm. I, I remember being in an airport my flight had been cancelled I was working in Germany for four days it was a Sunday night I was going home I was I was giving training in London the very next day you know I was meant to get home at six o'clock in bed by 10 up at seven o'clock trained by eight to deliver this training in London at nine o'clock and the flight had been delayed by two hours. I was exhausted. I was hungry. You know, I said I had work to do, you know, because I was working with a doctor in Germany. I said I had to fill in some medical records and send them to her. So I thought, right, I'm going to listen to my own grounding exercise. You know, it's 10 minutes. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't take 10 minutes, but the audio is 10 minutes because it's, it's for beginners. And then I was just completely energized. I got through the medical records in like, I know, 20 minutes or something. And um, I decided that I'd go and eat something. So I packed away my computer. I walked past the bar and this guy said, would you like to join us for a drink? I said, I really need food. They said, the bar sells food. And I thought, yeah, well, why not? So I had a meal with these two guys, you know, had a beer with them, got on the plane, very happy, got home, went straight to bed, made it to work the next day. The point being is that having a healthy relationship with your body enables you to relax. And when we relax, that's like having a good night's sleep. You know, and then if we choose to have a drink of alcohol, we can and we can enjoy it. And it's not about numbing anything down and it doesn't make us tired. It's just something, you know, and I definitely wouldn't have drunk alcohol if I wasn't eating, you know, because my body is too sensitive for that. But we can have a healthy relationship with ourselves. Mm. We can have a healthy relationship with drinking and eating and our, and our bodies rather than using them as self-medicating, which actually, you know, if we're numbing the feelings through alcohol, when we become sober, the feelings are much more, they're stronger, and that's scientifically proven. Mm. So what do we do then? We want to numb them down again. That's how people become alcoholics yeah. or overeaters or whatever their choice of self-medication is. Yeah. Cannabis, yeah. Whatever it is. I think that's an interesting aside because I've spoken to a number of people who've when they stopped drinking, they said things got worse before they got better, and it was that journey through. And and so that kind of resonates. But I think I think that's a really that's a really good place to to sort of wrap it up because I'm conscious of time. Um, but I think for me, for the listeners' takeaway, and for me and on my own journey, is 
appreciating that emotions and feelings there's this difference we can get locked up and trapped in in sort of just the thoughts that go with it but actually how we can step into our feelings in a more positive way grounding ourselves through that grounding exercise and support perhaps if it's a you know needs that additional support perhaps through you etc i think can be a really powerful way to reconnect with something that you know we've probably just not valued we've, we've downright dissed in the past and it could be really empowering and freeing and lead us to all sorts of new places really if we start to really connect with them so thank you for for your time and it's been really it's been brilliant been brilliant to sort of bounce some of my curiosity and my ideas around uh, and questions sorry could you in terms of it we will share the links um if you're okay with that to the to yeah, those resources that you talked about to you is it, if anybody wants to get in touch with you what's the best way to you can give a shout out now we can certainly put it in the show notes as yeah. well but to get so, in touch- my website is the same as my name fiona Maguire. so most people know how to spell fiona but Maguire spell m-a-g-u-i-r-e.com i'm irish not scottish and um there's all kinds of resources there. And I, I literally share the link where they can go straight to right. the page where they download the grounding exercise. Brilliant. Well, lovely. Thank you for your time. And again, just listeners, if you have any feedback or questions, don't forget you can contact me at div at restlessmidlifer.com and you can check out the show notes at uh, the um, Restless Midlifer podcast uh, where you find show notes and links as well. So thank you for your time and thank you for your honesty. It's been a delight. It's been great to explore this topic with no, you. Thanks, Dave. It's be very good thank you so much take care thank you take care thank you for listening you'll find all show notes links and resources mentioned at midlifereshape.com forward slash podcast and it would mean so much if you could spread the word to your fellow restless midlifers share the show and links and if you aren't already subscribe to the show in your podcast feed of choice and one more thing if you enjoy the show it would be great if you could rate it by visiting midlifereshape.com forward slash review It would mean so much, and I may even give you a shout-out in return. And a quick final thanks to production assistant Karen North of North BA and for the music, which is called Silver Star by the awesome Logan Nicholson of Music for Makers at musicformakers.com. Take care for now, and don't forget you really can reshape your midlife health and rekindle that spirit of adventure.